Let's continue our thinking about Acts chapter 17 this morning. You can have your copy of God's Word open to that passage. And as we work through this text, we're going to try to follow uh, the logic both of Paul's context and then of his sermon. And so uh, the proposition or the, the theme of our sermon today actually kind of comes out of the logic of the text, and I think it will become clear at the end of the text, but just for the sake of all of our note-taking, we will mention the theme at the beginning. Uh, But you'll see how this sort of becomes the conclusion of what Paul does here in Athens. And it is this, that we must turn from idols and trust in Jesus, the crucified and risen Savior. This is the, the call of the text today. Now, as Paul brings this theme in Athens, it is meant for unbelievers. It's meant for those who've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And he he calls them to turn from their idolatry and to trust in Jesus. But this message is one that happens to be crucial for us as believers as well. Because it's the very nature of idols that they can creep into our hearts again. Remember the words of the Apostle John, for instance, at the end of his letter. 1 John 5, I think it's 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Even as believers, this kind of idolatry can creep in and we begin to worship the wrong things. And so a message like this, a theme like this, to turn from idols and trust in Jesus, may be what we need to hear as believers again today as well. That Though we've trusted in Him as Savior, maybe we've begun to worship something else and need to turn away from that idol again. We encounter Paul, as we've talked about already, in the city of Athens. And when he's there, it's interesting that he's kind of shaken by the way this city is gripped by idolatry. You notice in verse 16, it says that Paul uh, was in Athens waiting for his co-workers in Athens. His spirit was provoked when he saw that the city was given over to idols. This means that he, he was just deeply disturbed by the idolatry of the city. And the very next thing he does, we see in verse 17, is that he begins to preach. He reasons with them, teaching. Now, remember, what is Paul's method? We learned about it at the beginning of chapter 17. Paul's method is, there in verse 2 and 3 of chapter 17, he reasons from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. So Paul's message is the crucified and risen Savior. And it's significant that when he sees the idolatry of Athens, he doesn't change his method. He doesn't change the way he goes about it. He continues to do the same thing. He begins preaching the crucified and risen Savior. He's the solution to idolatry. And so that's the first thing we notice as we come to this text and see kind of how Paul handles things. The message of the crucified and risen Savior combats idolatry. If we're facing idol worship, what we need is to be reminded of the one who died for us and rose again. Jesus, He is the Savior from idolatry. So let's dig in a little bit to this section of verses 16 through 18. And uh, to remember where we are in context, you remember uh, last week, 
We, we noticed the Apostle Paul was expelled from Thessalonica, and so he traveled to the city of Berea and then uh, faced persecution there as well, and so he traveled south. And we mentioned this briefly last week. He either went by sea, in the Aegean Sea here, down to the city of Athens, or he may have traveled along the coast. We don't know for sure, but somehow or another, he arrived there in the south uh, of that peninsula of Greece, present-day Greece, to the city of Athens, a famous city, one known for its uh, philosophy, one known for its religion, and this is where Paul lands. And we noticed in the text already that Paul is struck by the idolatry there. Uh, history estimates that there were over 30,000 altars and idols throughout the city. And so you can imagine the Apostle Paul there as he's waiting for his co-workers to arrive, maybe thinking to himself, you know what, I'll wait till Silas and Timothy join me here and then we'll begin ministry. As you can kind of think of him wandering around the city of Athens and as he sees idol after idol after idol and altar to various gods through the city, his heart is just moved for the city given over to false worship. And so he preaches the crucified and risen Savior. He not only goes to the synagogue, as we saw in verse 17, but he goes to the marketplace as well. This is a shift for Paul. He often just begins in the synagogue. In this this situation, he's actually doing both concurrently, going to both the Jews and those who had no uh, Jewish background at all, preaching in the marketplace. While he's there, something happens in verse 18. Two uh, groups of philosophers hear him preaching, Epicureans and Stoics. Now, uh, just to give you a brief and probably um, unfair summary of their philosophy, uh, Epicureans basically believed that life was about the pursuit of pleasure. Okay? And so they really didn't believe in much of an afterlife. And so as a result, it's just kind of like live how you want and pursue pleasure. Now, if an Epicurean philosopher was here today, he'd probably argue with me on that. This is probably an unfair summary. That's the best I can do in a, in a short, uh, brief explanation here. Then you have the Stoics. Okay? The Stoics pursued life in, from a different perspective, from a different manner. Their view was that you really tried to live the good life And in doing so, in living a good life, you could sort of uh, direct history. And that's how you achieved what you wanted. You could kind of get what you wanted in history, you know, better culture, this result, that thing. You got that by doing your best to live a good life. And so those are kind of the two uh, basic philosophies here. And if you notice, both of them have very little to do with any sort of deity, Not the one true God, let alone other gods. They're actually, they acknowledge that probably some of these gods exist, but they were sort of a means to an end. For the Epicureans, the gods are here to help us pursue pleasure. For the Stoics, the gods are here to respond to our good living and give us what we want, right? So they're they're both kind of serving themselves in their philosophies. Neither one of the groups believed in any kind of a resurrection, And that's what really grabs their attention in verse 18. He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, they say, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Paul's preaching a crucified and risen Lord, and they're going, well, wait a second, this doesn't line up with our thinking. You can imagine how a resurrection would sort of throw off the live however you want, just seek pleasure, or direct history by good living. A resurrection 
brings into question whether those are actually the right philosophies. So, verse 19, they ask Paul to come to the Areopagus. This was a central location. There was actually a council of the Areopagus where they would gather and they would debate religion and philosophy. And the council, I think in history, it was about 30 men or so, would, would bring some conclusion. And what, what was the right conclusion here? What was you know, ethically right? What was right according to religion? And so they bring Paul before this council to, to share his new doctrine, is what they call it there in verse 19. And so they are ready to listen to him. We want to know what these things mean. Now Luke gives us a little clue into what's going on in verse 21. They just want, they just kind of are worshiping, wanting to hear and tell something new. Paul preaches to them the message of the crucified and risen Savior. And why does he do this? Why is this his method? Because he knows that the way we combat idolatry is looking to the crucified and risen Savior. He's the one who saves us from our idolatry. It's uh, springtime, and so trees and flowers are in bloom. Well, maybe not after the freeze we had last night. We'll see how that goes. But uh, we planted last year a new tree in our backyard. Uh, a, a royal raindrop crab tree. And it's supposed to have these bright, beautiful pink blooms on it. It hasn't quite bloomed yet. Last year was the first spring that it bloomed. And not long after it bloomed, you know, we'd look out our back window and kind of admire our new tree, you know, each day, whether it was around breakfast or coffee or whatever, just kind of peek out of the back. Oh, that's such a pretty little tree, right? You know, just proud of our little tree. Then sometime in June, I looked out my back window at that pretty little tree, and it looked like the leaves were all gone. What in the world happened to my crab tree? And so I wandered out the back and began to look at my tree and realized that the leaves were still there. They were just like these skeleton leaves. All that was left was the, the outline of the veins. And I began looking at my tree and wondering what was wrong, and I noticed these little beetles just going to town on the leaves with the kind of the shiny back. Maybe you've encountered these beetles before. They're called the Japanese beetle. And they uh, fly in sometime in mid-June, and they devour certain kinds of plants and trees. And they just eat all the leaves. Now, I did some research online, and the, the, the general Internet advice was that likely my tree would not die. It would hopefully recover and be okay next year. But I devoted myself to finding the best way to get rid of these Japanese beetles this coming year. And so I am already thinking about mid-June and how I will destroy these Japanese beetles daily watching my crab tree. I researched all the different ways to get rid of Japanese beetles, and unfortunately, there's no singular method, right? There's not some magic treatment that just kills them all. So there are a variety of methods. You can get a bag that has some kind of scent in it that attracts the Japanese beetles. Some of you are shaking your heads. Yes, because the more you read about this bag, the more you realize that what it actually does is it attracts more Japanese beetles to your yard. So that's not the ideal solution, right? Sure, you catch some in the bag, but others happen to land on the tree and you're in trouble anyway. Uh, another solution that was out there is that when the Japanese beetles are on your tree, you go out to the backyard and you knock them off into a jar. 
Well, then they're already on my tree, and I have to, like, watch it 24-7, you know. There's another one. Go get it, you know, and knock it off into the jungle. That's not ideal. So solution after solution was really sounding like not much of a solution. There are various insecticides that you can spray on your tree, but again, after reading those, they, the Japanese beetles have to be on your tree for the insecticides to work. And even then, they only last for a couple hours, so I'd be out there every three hours spraying my tree. You know, this is not going to work. So I'm still researching solutions because there was no clear way to stop the Japanese beetles. Aren't you encouraged about your crab tree as well? If you'd like to sign up to take shifts in my backyard. (laughs) When it comes to solving our idolatry, God has given us a solution. It's the message of the crucified and risen Savior. And it works every time. The one who pulls no punches. He's clear about the fact that our idolatry is sin and sin brings death. So clear that he died in our place and conquered our sin and death to free us from our enslavement to idol worship. See, he's the solution. And this is why Paul, grieved by a city given over to idols, comes to preach the crucified and risen Savior. Jesus' death and resurrection reminds us that there is such a thing as justice, right? These, these false gods have no justice. It's just uh, give them what they want, and so then we'll get what we want. But there's no answer for sin. There's no answer for the things we've done wrong. But the crucified and risen Lord accounts for justice because justice is served, and it's served on Him in my place. His resurrection means something. It speaks of one who actually has power to conquer our sin and our death. See, the message of Jesus combats idolatry. Now, here's just an illustration to think through what this means practically for us. A made-up scenario here. It was the third time Amber had exploded at her children that day. Why can't they just listen to me? She thought to herself, why can't they just behave? She felt so worthless as a mom. What must people think of her? She can't even control her children. Discouraged and at the end of herself, Amber sat down to read her favorite passage, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. At that moment, the Spirit impressed those words on her heart. If one died for all, then all died. Amber's eyes were opened again to the fact that she wasn't living for Jesus. She was living for herself. She had begun to worship her children. Her world revolved around their success or failure. But the more she thought, the more she realized she had begun to worship herself too. She cared too deeply what others thought about her success as a mom. It was that very idolatry that demanded the death of Jesus. She paused to pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die for my idolatry. I've been worshiping myself and my children, and I don't want to worship these things anymore. I want to worship you alone. Help me to live for you in each moment, entrusting my children to you and trusting my identity in Christ 
rather than fearing what people think of me. Thank you for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. She told her husband about the surgery God had done on her heart, and they committed to helping one another to worship God alone in their home. The message of the crucified and risen Savior combats idolatry. As the Apostle Paul begins to work with the Athenians here, he points out to them that their knowledge or even lack of knowledge is not enough to save them. So we learn two truths from this next section. Neither knowledge nor ignorance can save us from idolatry. Neither knowledge nor ignorance can save us from idolatry. Now, we saw already how the Athenians worshipped knowledge. Luke pointed it out in verse 21. They just loved to talk back and forth. And if there was any new little thing they hadn't heard before, they wanted to discuss and debate it. And so they worshipped knowing more. And in all their knowledge, they kind of rested in what they knew. Well, we know enough to know that, uh, you know, sure, there might be some gods out there. And as long as we keep them happy, we can kind of get what we want and pursue what we want. We have it figured out. They so worshipped their knowledge that they just kind of said, well, well, we'll just add another God to the mix, just in case there's something we're missing, but we don't think there is. And so there's this inscription to the unknown God. But what's interesting about that is what Paul does next at the end of verse 23. He says to them, the one whom you worship without knowing, without knowing. It's a word that means in ignorance. So, in all their seeking of knowledge, they're actually still suffering from ignorance. Their knowledge can't save them from their idolatry. In fact, they're just using what they think they know to help them worship themselves even more. On the other hand, their ignorance is not an excuse. They're not just okay because they didn't know. Paul's about to preach to them what they need to know. See, neither knowledge nor ignorance can save us from idolatry. Paul then will go into this sermon, but we pause at verse 23 because it's there where we understand that their knowledge and their ignorance was not enough to save them. I remember one time I was uh, counseling a young man who was having trouble getting up on time for class. He was a college student and uh, found himself just consistently sleeping through class. And he was approaching the point where he'd had so many absences that he was going to begin failing his classes. And so we sat down and we began to talk through. And I initially approached the issue purely based on an issue of knowledge, that he just didn't understand ways to get up in the morning. And so we talked through all sorts of methods that he could use to get up in the morning, methods that I had used myself to to varying degrees of success through the years. But at any rate, uh, one such method was, was to get three alarm clocks, right? Put one by your head. That gets you out of your sleep. Put one at your feet. That makes you do a sit-up. Put one across the room so you actually have to stand up and walk. And all these things begin to wake you up, Right? And then uh, another method, well, tell a friend who's in that class that you need to be up and ask if he'll stop by the room and make sure that you're awake and ready to go to class. So we walked through three or four methods as well. And so I remember leaving that session thinking, well, he's got the knowledge he needs. 
This is going to be a successful week for him. The same things happened. Hmm. He still wasn't getting up on time for class, and so I adjusted my methods. I began to ask a few more questions and begin to talk with him a little bit more about what was going on and began to become clear that there was a big slice of him that didn't want to get up and go to class. He, he really didn't want to be there. He wasn't excited about learning, and he was valuing his sleep and his comfort more than being on time to his class. And it wasn't until his desires changed, what he was worshiping changed, that he was able to begin getting up on time. You see, knowing things or just claiming ignorance are actually not enough to save us from our idolatry. Our hearts need to change. And there's only one who does that, the crucified and risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul preaches to these Athenians, and he's about to tell them about this God and what he's like. One of the things this passage helps us to see is that in our hearts, we are all worshipers. God created us to be this way. He tells the Athenians, I see that you are very religious. And it was a sign not only because of all of the idols in their city, but even the way they worshipped knowledge. Ah, there's some new bit of information. We must hear you on this. Paul can see their idolatry. But friends... We suffer from idolatry as well. So often we worship the creature rather than the creator. We worship money or our career or even good things like our children. We could even worship things like our church building. We can even worship our brothers and sisters in Christ valuing far too much what they think of us. There's so many things that we can worship, even good things that begin to rule us. Often at the core of all of that is worship of self. We choose to serve us rather than serving God. Many times looking for things that only God can give and to use them for our own ends. We seek peace. We seek pleasure and prosperity, prestige, the respect of people around us. We seek protection, safety from harm's way. We seek power. And all of these things we seek to serve ourselves rather than trusting God for them and seeking them for His glory. Again, this can be hidden in good things. For instance, this is one that as a pastor I have to wrestle with. A desire to be seen as a good pastor. Here's the interesting thing about that. That can actually result in many good things. That in fear of what people think of me and in a desire to be respected by people, I might do all the good things that the Bible commands a pastor to do. But in my heart, it's for me. And so worship can hide from us where we think we're doing all the right things, but I'm doing it just for myself. My temptation as a pastor is certainly to fear what people think. And the solution is to look again to Jesus Christ, who died to free me from my fear of man, who rose to conquer my sin and death. And when I trust in the love of God seen in Christ, I can fear God alone and not men. I can work to be a pastor for God's glory 
But God's grace, that continues on. You see, our worship hides from us. And yet, our knowledge and our ignorance can't save us. Notice verses 24 through 29 where Paul begins to explain the nature of our Creator. And what I want you to see as we walk through these verses, we'll we'll do this in a a unique way. I want you to have your eyes on the text in just a moment. Uh, I'll put the point up on the screen so you have it and can jot it down. Paul's going to explain this, that the nature of our Creator exposes our idolatry. His very nature makes idolatry absurd. Who he is makes it clear that he alone should be worshipped. And so, as we walk through this text, this is like this beautiful treatise on the doctrine of God. There are at least 12 attributes of God that the Apostle Paul talks about in this section. It's a rich, rich text. Notice, we're going to walk down through this. You can have your eyes on the verses. I'm going to point out the doctrine of God and how it just destroys idolatry. Okay, here we go. Verse 24. First, the Apostle Paul mentions that God made the world. This is God's role as creator, which crushes the worship of any created thing. If he made it all, then he is to be worshipped. Next, in verse 24, he points out that he's not only creator, but Lord of heaven and earth. That means he's master and commander. He's in charge of everything that happens. He rules sovereignly. And if that's true, this means, this crushes our idolatry of self, serving me. It's it's a lie. He's master of everything. But not only that, we learn in verse 25 that he, or excuse me, at the end of verse 24, there's one more there, that he is transcendent. This is that he does not dwell in temples made with hands. He is above us. We do not contain him in locations or places. This destroys our idolatry of objects or places that we think will help us. Verse 25, the Apostle Paul continues. He says, we don't worship him with our hands. And the idea there is that he doesn't need anything from us. The the idolatry of the day was to bring something to the God, to make him happy so he'll do something for you. Feed him or give him what he needs. And Paul's saying, "No, no, the supreme creator of the universe doesn't need a thing from us. The word for this is his independence and his sufficiency. This destroys self-worship as if we could give something he needs so we can get something from him. No. Not only does he have everything, he is next provider. He gives to all life and breath and all things. Another attribute of God. God, our provider. Again, this destroys worshiping other things. God alone is the source. Nothing can give me what I need but God. He's the provider. He continues on in verse 26, that He's the Father of humanity. He created us all from one. And it's literally just the word one there. Some translations say one blood. Some might insert the word man. That is, we all come from one. Who is that? Well, all the way back to Adam. God is the Father of mankind. And so we trust Him. We worship Him. We don't worship humans, including ourselves. 
This destroys worship of nationalism. It would have destroyed their worship of Greece or Rome or or their city of Athens, right? Because we're all from the Lord. He's the Father of mankind. Not only this, but He's sovereign. He has appointed the times and boundaries of their dwellings. He's sovereign over all nations. This destroys our worship of, uh, of countries, Put our hope in one people group or another. No, the Lord is the sovereign ruler of them all. Verse 27 continues on. The Lord has revealed himself in creation that mankind would seek him. This is another attribute of God. He's a God who reveals himself and he desires that we would know him and find him. And yet, mankind is left groping in the darkness, so the text says, as if we're blind, which the scriptures confirm we are. Paul goes on to say that he's not far from any one of us. This is the imminence of God. He is near. And though he is transcendent, he is also close. Well, in what way is he near? Verse 28 explains, in him we live and move and have our being. He's the one who holds the world together. This is the sustaining work of God. And again, it destroys our idolatry. God's the one holding the world together, down to the very little atoms that make everything up. And again, the Apostle Paul returns this idea, we are his offspring. He actually quotes one of the Athenian poets here, acknowledging that they should know better. There is a God who created all things. Verse 29 moves to another kind of idolatry. We've been talking about how we do not worship creation because of what our Creator is like. Now we talk about worshiping false images of that Creator which is another kind of idolatry. And so in verse 29, Paul points out that since we are the offspring of God, we should not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. He made us, not the other way around, and so we do not worship things made with our hands. This goes all the way back to God's commands at the beginning and with Israel, and so on and so forth through Scripture. You shall not make any graven images. He made us, not the other way around. So the very nature of our God just exposes our idolatry and crushes it. All idolatry is wrong because it's directly opposed to the nature of God. You've had things exposed before. I remember one scenario that was... um, just especially uh, uh, sticks in my memory. Uh, I was in junior high, and so it's a stage of life when you're, you know, maybe a little overly concerned about how you look and what people think of you, and, uh, you know, those kind of thoughts are going through your head. It's the first time that I'd ever gone to uh, an activity uh, under black lights. Have you ever been to something like that? I think it was bowling was this activity. So it was like glow-in-the-dark bowling is, you know, what they call it, but there's all sorts of black lights in the room, and, uh, and so, you know, plastics and things like that just kind of glow a bright neon. You've experienced this kind of thing before, right? So it was the first time I'd been in a scenario like this. And so I remember going to the activity and uh, first time being under the black light, you know, and it just changed my appearance. And so I remember uh, it somehow just highlighted all the little bits of, you know, whatever that were on my shirt, dust and other things. I'm looking down like, what is all this? You know, and I'm brushing myself off. And as I look down further, down both legs of my pants, there are, are streaks looking like I would spilled something on myself. 
right? And it's just, just glowing on my pants. What in the world happened here? What is going on? Well, what I didn't know at the time is that certain laundry detergents glow under black light. So my freshly washed pair of jeans, right, was glowing in the black light because it, had, it must have received the initial pour of the, uh, the detergent when my mom had thrown it in the laundry, right? And so there I am with these glowing streaks down my pants as this junior higher concerned about what everybody thinks, you know, Lance, what's on your pants? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Embarrassing. Those things stick with you. Why? Because, well, in that case, light I wasn't expecting exposed what I couldn't see in the light of day. Later, I learned it was detergent and went back and told all my friends, it's just laundry detergent, just laundry detergent. I didn't spill anything on myself. This is what the light of God's glory does to our idolatry. When we see what He's like, when we understand the nature of God, it just exposes our false words. Why would we worship anything else? It's directly opposed to who he is and what he's like. We pursue all sorts of things. We go after peace, and so we, we yell at others for disturbing our peace. But peace only comes from God and can only be present in a heart that is resting in God. We seek protection. We look to all sorts of things for safety and security, our, our bank accounts, our doors, our locks, even politicians. We worry about our kids when they're away. We stay awake late at night wondering if we're safe. What was that noise? We worry about all the potential diseases that could attack us. But safety comes only from the Lord. He is our protector. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. If God is for us, who can be against us? We search for power in creation. We use our words and our strength to exert our control over others. We even increase the volume in our lives in order to uh, leverage our power over others and even to make good things happen. But only God has power. And we can only experience and participate in His power as we submit to Him and let Him rule in us. Prosperity, we, we seek money and possessions. The cost of things directs our decision-making. We worry when our bank account is low. We let fear keep us from trusting God and being generous. Our spending habits reveal a trail of selfishness. But the reality is that all things come from God. He owns it all. He's the source of prosperity in this life. And He's promised to meet all our needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. What about prestige or the respect of others? We're, we're deeply offended when we aren't heard or our advice is ignored. We work hard to keep up appearances. We lie awake at night wondering what people think of us. Is anyone upset with me? But our honor, our respect comes only from the Lord. He is the preeminent one. He is to be worshipped and feared. And on top of that, He made us His children and that identity in Christ is the highest honor a human could ever receive. We search for pleasure. We eat, we lust, we covet, we buy. We give into all sorts of vices in pursuit of pleasure. The vast majority of decisions we make are made simply because we want to feel good. But God is the source of pleasure. True pleasure only comes from Him. And if any pleasure is not sourced in Him, it is death in disguise. 
For the lips of an immoral woman drip with honey, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood. Her feet go down to death. Only God satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Psalm 107, 9. It's silly and absurd to worship anything other than our supreme, all-sufficient Savior. Trust Him and take Him at His word. This comes to the conclusion then of Paul's sermon where he's going to bring this charge to repent. And so what we see is that it's only repentance and faith in Jesus that can save us from his judgment for idolatry. Notice what Paul says in verse 30. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Turn from idols to God. Turn away from what you've been worshiping and worship God alone. Now's the time to repent. And the idea is that before the Lord Jesus came, God was working through the nation of Israel and kind of let the other nations go their own way with just a few examples of God stepping in. But now that the Lord Jesus has come and salvation is announced to all people, we're accountable for the truth of the gospel. We must hear and believe in the message of the crucified and risen Savior. Why? Verse 31. Because God has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. (laughs) This is a big deal for the Epicureans and the Stoics. There is a resurrection. And God will be judging not by how well you pursued the good life, not by how well you pursued pleasure. God will be judging by righteousness. And he's sending his son to do it, and he proved it by his death and resurrection. So the question is, how's my righteousness going to hold up to the righteousness of God on Judgment Day? We can't. Only by faith in the crucified and risen Savior do we receive the righteousness of God and find peace with God and security in the day of judgment. You see, it's that very idolatry that... The Lord Jesus is coming again to judge. Paul makes it clear here. He is about to return. Now, sadly, in verse 32, I think they actually interrupt Paul's sermon here. They hear about the resurrection. They start to kind of shout and protest and even mock him. Ah, you believe in a resurrection? Well, yeah, (laughs) he's alive. But they begin to mock. And we know that Paul's preaching often then concludes with a call not just to repent, but to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the good news of what Jesus has done. And so sadly, he ends here with the bad news that you've sinned and that judgment is coming. And they just kind of begin to mock him and the crowd breaks up. Verse 33, Paul departs. But there's good news. Verse 34, some joined him and believed including a man named Dionysius, who was a member of that council in Athens, an Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and some others with them. Some hear the message of the crucified and risen Savior, and they believe. They turn from their idols, they repent of their sin, and they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only repentance and faith can save us from His judgment for idolatry. This is true if you've never trusted in Christ as Savior. You've never turned from your idolatry. You may be sitting here thinking, well, I I don't worship idols. I don't worship false images. But we have to recognize that living for self is exactly that. 
worship of self. If I'm just living for my good and just doing what I want and trying to earn my good life or seeking pleasure like the Epicureans and the Stoics, then I'm worshiping me. And that's idolatry, and it's the very idolatry that Jesus paid for on the cross. That idolatry deserves death. And there's one who knew about your idolatry and came to pay for your sins, to die the death that you deserve to die in your place. His name is Jesus. And if you would turn from your worship of self and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today, your sins would be forgiven. You'd be given the righteousness of God and peace with God and confidence in the day of judgment. Would you trust in Jesus today? He saves us from all our idolatry. This is true for those of us who have trusted in Christ. We are saved. We're, we're born again. And yet we've fallen into idolatrous ways. The nature of idolatry is that we must continue to turn from our sin. Let me conclude with one final story from my own life. There was a period of time in my life when I, I really wanted a good thing. I really, really wanted to know what God had for my future. A range of time in college or seminary, and I just wanted to know what God had. I was, I wanted to live for God. I, I wanted to please Him, and so I remember looking to the future, and I just, Lord, make it clear. What are the next steps? I mean, I want to know five years down. I want to know ten years down. I had some decisions in front of me, and I and I needed to decide which path I was going to take. And so I just remember calling out to God, make it clear. What's what's going to happen in five years? What's going to happen in ten years? And the Lord wasn't showing me. The Lord wasn't making it clear. I didn't know what was going to happen. And so I actually grew frustrated with God. I didn't know it at the time. I didn't realize this was happening. But little by little, as I prayed and God wasn't answering the way I wanted Him to, I became frustrated. And so my time with God and the Word began to fade. I wasn't opening my Bible each morning to spend time with Him. It even began to reveal itself in my relationships. I became short, sort of angry with people around me. Just a, just a frustrated person on every front. And in my mind, it was all justified because I just really wanted to serve God. And if He would just tell me what He wants from me five or ten years from now, this would all be okay. Sort of begging God to get with the program. I, I, and I'll never forget when God opened my eyes to my idolatry. Because what I was doing, even though it was after a good thing, I was worshiping myself. I was calling on God to serve me. I know what I want to do with my life. And even though it was in the name of serving God, here I am making demands of the sovereign ruler of the universe to show me what the plan is so I can make good choices, right? Who is that all about? That's all about me. And it became clear to me that in my efforts to do this good thing down the road, I, I'm sinning all over the place in the day-to-day -day stuff of life. I'm not getting in the Word. I'm being rude to people. I'm short with my friends. Why? Because I'm worshiping me. And God broke my heart. I bowed before him. I'll never forget the day. 
said, I'm, I'm done. I'm done serving me. I'm done making this about me, Lord. You, I'll just do each day what you've called me to do. You lead me however you want. Whatever, whatever five years or ten years looks like, I just want to please you today and make my life about you. Sadly, that's a conversation I have to have with the Lord frequently. Because idolatry creeps back in. We start worshiping ourselves again. Praise God, He's given us one who solves our idolatry. Jesus shows us the better way. He died for my sin and rose again so that I could have that conversation with God and turn again from my idols and just say, Okay, Lord, whatever you want, you're the creator, you're the supreme ruler, you hold everything together, whatever you want. Yes, Lord. This is how God, through Christ, conquers our idolatry. Would you turn and trust in Jesus for God's help to conquer your idolatry today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for sending Jesus not only to pay for our sins, but to conquer our sin and death to give us hope that there there is a way out of my enslavement to sin. And by turning to Jesus and trusting in Him, You give the power to overcome our idolatry. I pray for those who've never done that today, that they would turn by faith to the One who died for them and rose again. And that those who have done that, that today we would afresh repent of our self-worship, which so often creeps into our hearts. You alone deserve our worship. Help us to look to Jesus and turn to you again. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.